0: It's the second week of a new series that we're going through uh, here in church on the book of Exodus. And we're going to spend now until, uh, until the end of the summer looking at the first uh, 20 chapters of the books of, book of Exodus. You'll see the title for this series, A Life of Freedom, because that is what Exodus is about. It's about a God setting His people free, leading us into freedom. Our text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at 20, verses 23 through 25. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 46. Let's pray together and then we'll, uh, we'll read our text for this morning. Father, we come this morning and ask that you would speak to us through your word, for it is your word. Pray that you would give us freedom to bring, come to you with our questions. Look to your word to find uh, your answers as you speak Words of comfort and healing and help and challenge to us. So would you do that? Open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Uh, If you're just joining us uh, this week, if you missed our first week on Exodus last week, we we read chapters 1 and 2 up to this point, and if you remember, it leaves us sort of in this cliffhanger of of what's going to happen next. Because in chapter 1, we see that God's people have been taken into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And in that time, uh, as the oppression and heat builds for them, the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is frightened by the populousness of of Israel. And so what he does is he institutes this um, policy of genocide that all the male babies would be killed in order to help uh, curb the population of the Israelites. In the middle of the darkness of that beginning of chapter 2, we see the birth of one very special baby boy, the boy Moses. And as Moses grows, uh, we begin to think, is this this the one who's going to come and deliver God's people? And Moses begins to wonder that too, because one day he walks out and he sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew slave. And in a moment of passion, he strikes down the Egyptian, he murders him, buries him in the sand. And the next day he tries to break up a fight between two Hebrew slaves. And they say, are you going to kill us like you killed that guy? Who made you a deliverer for us? And Moses knows that Pharaoh has found out and has heard. And so he flees. He's about 40 years old, Scripture tells us, in other places when he leaves. And he spends the next 40 years in Midian, a half lifetime for him. And this story that seemed like it was going somewhere starts off so badly Glimmer of hope with this potential redeemer seems to be going badly once again. And if you're paying attention to that story, and as we think about it, I think it leaves us asking this question you know, where, where is God? What's he doing? What kind of story is this? Uh, some of you are familiar with the movie The Princess Bride. And the Princess Bride, uh, the the basic story underlying the story is this sick kid who's at home on a rainy afternoon, and his grandfather comes to read him a a fairy tale. And so the movie's this fairy tale, and periodically through the telling of this, the 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 grandkid stops the grandfather uh, for these you know interjections in the middle of it. And there's this one point in the story when uh, in the middle, when things don't seem to be going very well for the hero. And it seems like the villain, the evil Prince Humperdinck, is, uh, is going to win. And so, so the kid breaks into the story to talk to his grandfather. He says, who gets Humperdinck? And the grandfather says, I, I, don't, I don't understand. And the kid says, well, who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Who? And the grandfather says, nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. And the kid said, you mean He wins. Good grief, Grandpa, what, what did you read me this thing for? Why are you telling me this story? What kind of story is this? And that's certainly what the people of Israel would have been asking at this point 400 years in slavery what kind of story is this? What is God up to? And it brings up for us uh, very same, very real questions about who God is and what kind of God He is and what He's up to in our own lives. Lord, what are you doing? What is going on? What are you up to? This is my life we're talking about, God. What kind of story are you telling? You'll notice from the context of these verses that the point for Israel, this place in life for them, is one of very real and deep suffering. And it's in times of suffering, whether our own or As you see those you know, we begin to ask some very relevant theological questions. Where are you, God? It's no longer an abstract question. And maybe these are the questions that you find yourself asking in your own life even this week. Questions about your own real and very present experience of suffering. Or maybe it's the suffering you see uh, in the life of someone you know and care about and love uh, near and around you. Maybe Maybe it's suffering in the life of a friend or a spouse, or a child? Those are the questions the text brings up. So we're going to, this morning we're going to do what the Bible always invites us to do, which is to come with our questions straight to God, straight to His Word, to see what He has to say to us. And I think we're going to see three things here this morning about the suffering that, that is brought up here in these three verses. We're going, to, we're going to look at the mystery of suffering, and the cry of suffering, and our hope in suffering. First, the mystery of suffering. And here's the point I think we're going to see here, that in our lives, even in the lives of Christians, our suffering often is and remains a mystery to us. Because as we look at the people of Israel here, they're certainly asking this question, you know, why would God allow his people to be enslaved for 400 years? What's going on? Why such oppression? Why such back breaking slavery? Why such soul assaulting suffering in the lives of God's people? Why? Okay, well, let me give you three easy but uh, wrong solutions to that important question. Here's one God is simply not in control, and He doesn't know what's going to happen to His people, and at the end of the day, He can't be held responsible. Uh, He doesn't know, He's not in control. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 15, when God breaks into the life of Abraham, he makes a promise to him, a covenant to Abraham, that he would be their God and that Abraham and his descendants would be his children, his special people, that he would care for them. And right in the middle of all these great, incredible promises he gives Abraham, he says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God tells Abraham that this is what's going to happen to your people. Right in the middle of his promises, he speaks to him about this very long and real, poignant episode in their history of real suffering and slavery. So whatever we say about suffering, when we look, we, we cannot say that God does not know what's going to happen or that the world is not in His hands. He does not oversee all things because Scripture is very clear that He is and that He does. Second easy but wrong solution is that God just doesn't care about our suffering. He sees it, maybe He's in control, but he doesn't, he doesn't care. And the story of Scripture from cover to cover is the story of a God who very much cares about the suffering and the lostness of it. Of his people. And of a God who goes to great lengths to come and rescue them. And bring them salvation and healing and hope. In fact, the book of Exodus is the story, the book of God caring about the suffering of his people. And doing something about it. Because this story, this book of Exodus begins in slavery, but it does not end there. We can't say, if we know and trust scripture, that God does not care about our suffering Uh, Here's the third wrong but easy solution, one that's maybe very tempting for us. God's people brought this somehow. They must have brought this on themselves. They're being punished or they're being disciplined for their sin. Now, we're going to see in a minute that God does, in fact, bring discipline in the lives of his people. But but I think what we need to see first is that the Bible nowhere even hints that these people are in slavery because of some mistake or some sin of their own. As we go on in the book of Exodus, you'll see uh, that Exodus is, never hesitates to talk about the failings of God's people and the way they wander and the way they continue to distrust God and distrust Moses in the ways that God, even after rescuing them from slavery, brings very serious discipline in their lives to draw them back. Exodus never blinks at being incredibly open and honest about that, but we get no hint here that their sin had anything at all to do with it. So why? Why in slavery? Well, we get at least one glimpse in Scripture uh, from the perspective of hindsight. Romans nine seventeen. Paul is speaking of God's work throughout history in, his, in, in the people of Israel. And he talks about this incident in verse 17. He says, The Scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And that tells us something about God. what God was up to, that he was using the hardness of this situation to show the world the greatness of his power and his love for his people. But we only get that in hindsight. And here's the point, I think, from Exodus 2. God's people don't know that. Not at this point. For them, their suffering is a mystery. Now, for this gen- ex- for this generation of here in Exodus, they're about to know God's freedom from slavery, but they don't know it yet. And for 400 years, their forefathers have gone before them, not knowing what God was up to. For them, their suffering was a mystery. And the truth for us is our own experiences of suffering in our own lives, and as we see the people around us, may very well be a mystery to us as well. And that is very hard for us to accept, is it not? Maybe our suffering is mysterious and it's going to stay that way. Because we want to be able to understand and we want to be able to label, to define, to come up with the answer so that we can get some little piece of a grasp on our suffering so that we might be able to control it. So that we might be able to turn the universe right side up again and make life work for us. We want to be able to control our lives and certainly control our suffering. We want to believe that we have that kind of power in our lives. But I think we see here that often our suffering remains a mystery. And the truth is this might be actually freeing for us if we're willing to grab hold of it. Let me suggest a couple of possible freeing implications. Some of us get very caught up in this question at particular points in our lives of what did I do wrong? Is God punishing me for some sin? Is he allowing me to experience the consequences of my poor choices? And that's, that's a question that is worth asking. Because God does, at times and in various ways, bring discipline into our lives to teach us, to correct us, to discipline us. That's the writer of Hebrews' point in chapter 12 of Hebrews, where he says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. That's a part of being in the family. God uses discipline to bring us home when we wander. And sometimes we can see the own suffering in our life and and connect the dots backward to the ways we have been turning from jesus but here in this text and this is a point for us this morning that is not always the case sometimes our suffering is not caused by that and it remains for us a mystery and that's exactly what jesus's disciples ran smack into in chapter nine of uh, the book of john when they come across this blind man a man who's been blind from birth so the disciples turn to jesus and say okay look at him he's blind why is he blind and they give jesus two options was it his sin or was, is it, was it the sin of his parents? And Jesus said to them, neither. This wasn't about his sin or the sin of his parents. But this man is here because God is going to display his glory in, in his life. And Jesus goes on to heal this man. But again, here's the point for that man. Up until that moment, his suffering was an utter mystery to him. The disciples' assumption was that his suffering must be a result of sin and that was not the case, and it's not the case for the Israelites right now. And truthfully, many times in our life, we look at the suffering in our lives. We need to take a deep breath and know, as we examine our lives, this isn't sin, this isn't God's discipline. It is mysterious. But we have a God who holds all mysteries in His hands. But for us, it's a mystery. Now, that also means a second implication. That means that you can never look at a situation in your life or in someone else's life And say this, God cannot be at work here. Can't possibly bring something good out of this suffering. This is pointless, irrational suffering. This is pointless, irrational accident, cancer, illness, desertion. And this text reminds us in the mystery of our suffering that we can't say this. And let me just simply put it to us this way. How would would we know? God says elsewhere in Scripture, do you see the end from the beginning? How could we possibly know what our infinite and transcendent God is or is not able to do in the very hard real events of our lives, in the suffering moments of our lives, in the moments of deepest pain, in the darkest parts? And are you going to bank everything on your own very limited perspective of the universe to be able to stake your claim that says, God couldn't possibly be at work here. Some of you have small children or have had or can certainly imagine. You take your children to the, to the doctor and they have to get shots. Uh, our pediatrician, one of the nurses, told us that it's actually the year-and-a-half-old visit that is the worst, the worst one of the whole lot because your kid has to get shots, And they're old enough to remember what it was felt like when they got shots last time. But they are not old enough to possibly be able to comprehend why you're doing this for their good. And so for them, it's only utter misery. And it is for the parents, too. Because I can remember standing there with my children over the doctor's table, physically restraining them while the nurse came over with four syringes, proceeded to bring incredible pain into my child's life. And the worst part of it is, and this is why I was doing it and my wife wouldn't, It's because your kid looks at you with this look in their eyes. How could you possibly be doing this to me? I thought you loved me. (laughs) And maybe sometimes in the mystery of the suffering of our own lives, we need to remember that though it is a mystery to us, it is not a mystery to our God. And isn't it just possible that He is at work in your life in such a way, that He is bringing things in your life that are ultimately going to be for good, but we have no way of seeing that right now. If you're suffering, if you know someone who's suffering, the reason for that suffering might remain a mystery for a while, or maybe for a lifetime. And maybe, just maybe, God wants something for you in your suffering other than to know why it is happening. Maybe the right question is not why is this happening, but rather what should I do in the face of my suffering? How am I to respond? How am I to find God in the middle of this? So the first thing we see here is the mystery of suffering. The second thing is the cry of suffering. Because that's what these people in Israel are left with. 400 years of slavery. What are they going to do? It's a mystery. How are they going to respond? Same for us. How are we going to respond? Well, what we see here, verses 23 and 24, how do the people of God respond? We pray. We pray. Look in verse 23 with me. There, There are two parts to this prayer. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. There are two parts to prayer. We groan and we cry out. This word, uh, the Hebrew word here for groan, it's the same word that's used elsewhere for the sounds that a woman makes when she is in labor. That's kind of groaning that's going on here. As as Camper mentioned, uh, our our own Dawn Robertson, Dawn had her baby on Wednesday, I um, got the call from, from Ben, and she had gone in at 5.15, and 5.15 in the morning, she, labor starts at home, they jump in the car, they go to the hospital, and the baby was born at 7.14 that morning. And I showed up the after, in the afternoon, I'm like, this is just weird, how did this happen so fast? Uh, but for Dawn, mercifully, she had two hours, two hours of labor, and that's a gift, but what about here in our text? For the Israelites, 400 years of labor, 400 years of slavery, 400 years of groaning, and maybe that feels much like your own experience or the experience of those that you know and love. And what we see here is that our suffering, our struggle, it makes us groan, and that is okay. And not only is that okay, it is entirely appropriate because our groans, our faithful groaning, And it is an expression of this very basic fact. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And the brokenness of the world is not God's deepest desire for His creation. And in this way our groaning is an act of faith because it says, this is wrong, God knows it's wrong, and I can trust that He is going to do something ultimately about it. What do we do with a friend or a loved one who is suffering? Maybe you've visited one in the hospital, you've gone over to see them in their home, you've called them on the phone, and you think, what am I possibly going to do? Well, maybe often our first step should be simply to this should be simply this to listen and to groan with them. Because groaning too is a part of prayer to our God. So we groan, but the second thing is we cry out. We don't only groan, we cry out, we cry for rescue. We cry out to our God. Now maybe you read these verses and you think, you know, is this really, is this really a prayer? You know, it, or, or is it just them and their misery sort of crying out? Uh, in Deuteronomy 26, Moses is telling this very story to the next generation of Israelites. He's, he's recapping what happened right here. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 26, verse 7. He says, Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression." These people are crying out to their God, the one who can bring rescue. In fact, the only one who can. And so for us as Christians, we take our suffering, even our mysterious suffering, to God in prayer. If you've been around for a while, maybe you were able to be a part of the adult ed class we had a number of weeks ago, the series on on the Lord's Prayer that Camper taught. You know that petition, Lord, give us today our daily bread. Give us everything we need for today. Meet us in our need for you to show up in our real lives today. To provide, to sustain, to heal, to make whole, to give us patience and faith and hope. This is how we walk through our suffering in the presence of God in prayer. One day at a time. Pray that God will meet you in your very real need for help and encouragement and rescue today. Not for the potential suffering or need or struggle you're going to have tomorrow, but for the one you're in the middle of today. Lord, show up here. Meet me here. Provide for me here today. Give me my daily bread. Suffering is often a mystery. And as believers, we're called to cry out in our suffering. But then the third thing about suffering, just briefly, our hope in suffering. Verses 24 and 25 are, are, I I say something like this every week. I think these are some of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. So what it says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. We see in this passage that God knows and He cares. He knows. He hears their prayers. He looks and He sees their suffering. And it says He knows. In Hebrew, He knows is a, is a pregnant word. It's not just intellectual assent, but it's this incredible, powerful identification entering into He knows. He knows. He knows their suffering. Do you see the beauty of this? Of God hearing and seeing and knowing, caring about the suffering of His people. He's involved. He doesn't just know they're suffering from afar, but up close. And He has been up close all along. Because at this very moment, His people are crying out. Did they finally just shake God's sleeve? Is He finally just paying attention to Him after all those years of silence? We see that God has always known. And always heard and always seen. Because when we've come to these two verses, these three verses, what? where are we in the story? God has already begun his work of raising up a deliverer in the person of Moses. And Moses is in Midian now, but he's not going to stay there. And God knows it. God has always been at work for the good of his people. And here he bends down and hears, sees, and he knows. God knows. Second thing is God cares. Look at verse 24. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. This idea of God's covenant, the promise that he makes to his people to be their God and that that promise is unbreakable. Now in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at much more in depth at this idea of a covenant and what that means. But for now, I just want to simply see this, that God makes promises to his people. He's not simply filled with good intentions for us. He promises to love us and he promises to never break his word. One commentator says this about God's promise here. He says, in saving his people, God displays his faithfulness to an earlier, his earlier promise. The Israelites deliverance is certain for what is at stake is nothing less than God's character. How do we know we can trust this promise? Because God does not lie. And he tells us in his word that he does not break his promises. What is our foundation, our hope, the very character of our trustworthy God? John Calvin, in commenting on these verses, he says, um, Indeed, since God is inclined towards us to help us out of his own free mercy, so he offers us and invites us voluntarily. And therefore, and here's the point, Confidence in prayer must only be sought for in God's promises. Not in our faithfulness. Not in our own personal piety or holiness or achievement. How do we know that God is going to fulfill His promises? Because they're God's promises. Because we can trust the One who makes those promises. Not because of the effort of ourselves as the One who receives those promises. What is our confidence in prayer? What is your confidence? Confidence in your prayer. Would it be this. That God sees and knows. And that God cares. And he promises to rescue and to help and deliver. And we know the whole story of scripture. And we see as clear as these promises are here. They're made even clearer for us where? In the person of Jesus. This greater rescuer. This greater redeemer The greater proof to us that God sees and knows and hears, and the greater promise to us that God cares. And He will, in fact, bring this rescue because He does not stay far off. He comes to us in the person of His Son, Jesus. Not only seeing our suffering, but experiencing it, taking on the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our own lives, the weight of our sin going to a violent and bloody death on a cross, being raised again so that we would never have to taste the wrath of our God, so that we could be made whole through Jesus who was broken for us. How do we know God cares? How do we know that He sees, that He knows? Because that's what the book of Exodus tells us. And it points us to Jesus who proclaims it that much more clearly for us, that God knows and cares let me just conclude with this. Remember the boy from The Princess Bride and breaking into the story. There's another early interruption in, in, in the movie uh, where early in the story that the hero, Wesley, and, and the heroine, Princess Buttercup, uh, they're, they're about to kiss and, and, the, and the grandson stops his granddad. He's like, whoa, whoa wait a second. Is, is this a kissing book? And uh, the grandfather's like, okay, we'll, you know, we'll skip that part. Well, you get to the very end of the story uh, and... The very end of the story when uh, the the hero has, in fact, rescued the heroine. When the story is being put back together, when it's coming to its glorious end. And Wesley, the hero, leans over again to kiss Princess Buttercup. And the grandfather stops the story and he he closes the book. And the kid says, well, wait, 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 what happens next? And the grandfather says, well, I I mean, he kisses her, but, I mean, you're not interested in that. He's like, well, well, you know, uh, just go finish the story. And he says, okay. So he opens up and he reads the last line and and you hear the narrator saying this. Since the invention of the kiss, there had been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. And this one left them all behind. The end. And that story, The Princess Bride, it ends with a kiss, a kiss that leaves all the others behind behind. But here's the thing about the story. Somehow the power of that kiss at the very end and the beauty of it is tied up intimately with all the twists and the turns and the plot complications and even the suffering and the pain that happen over the course of that story. In other words, that kiss at the very end wouldn't be the kiss that it is without all that they suffered together. That makes that the one, the kiss that left them all behind. And you know the Bible ends... With a kiss as well. With the return of Jesus, with the healing of the world, with the undoing of all that is wrong, with the final beautiful moment when our Lord and Savior, the King Jesus, returns for a wedding, his wedding with his people, his bride. When all is made right, when the kiss is finally given, and all suffering is finally redeemed. Brothers and sisters, in the mystery of our suffering, in the cry of our suffering, In the hope of our suffering, we long for that day, and it is coming. He is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we do cry out, how long? We lift up to you our very real suffering and the very real suffering of our friends and our family. Even when you leave us in the mystery of that, would you show us your goodness? Would you lead us to prayer? Would you give us the hope that is ours in the gospel? where you proclaim loudly and clearly to us that you do see, you do hear, you do know, and you do care? And you are doing something about it. Jesus, we thank you. That you are in fact the healer of the world. And we wait eagerly for your return. May we live in light of the glory of you even today. In the midst of our suffering, may it be redeemed and transformed as it draws us to You. We long for that day when the kiss really will be beautiful. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.